The History Channel Original Podcast. Sports History This Week, January 23rd, 1983. I'm Kalen Jones. The most famous tennis player in the world, one of the most recognizable athletes in the world, is taking a break from his hectic life by going on vacation with his parents and his wife Mariana in Kathmandu, Nepal. Most people might not find the freezing temperatures in the Himalayan mountains in January to be relaxing, but this is Bjorn Borg. The Ice Borg. He even refuses to wear a jacket, joking that the weather in Nepal is like a Swedish summer. He's only 26 years old, and he's already the most decorated tennis player ever to come out of Sweden. He's won 11 majors, tied with Roy Emerson for the most ever by a men's singles player in the open era. He's earned a week off. He plans to spend some time in the Chitwan National Park to see the rhinos and Bengal tigers. But when you're as famous as Borg, a week of leisure time, even in a remote location, can be hard to come by. Rumors in the media are running wild about his future, his mental and physical health, even his marriage. And Borg decides he can't wait until he gets back to the United States. He has to address the reporters right there in Kathmandu. And what he tells them leaves the room stunned. No one could quite believe it. We were all pretty shocked. On the other hand, there'd been sort of a forewarning. Today, a look at the brilliant tennis career of Bjorn Borg. How does he become one of the biggest celebrities in sports? And after retreating to the Himalayas, what does he say to reporters that will shock the tennis world? Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. At just 13 years old, Swedish tennis prodigy Bjorn Borg is already beating some of the best 18-year-olds in the country. He's a star on the rise. Take it from John Lloyd, a Wimbledon broadcaster for the BBC and a former tennis pro who played against Borg six times in the 1970s. You could see right away that there was something special about him. He had this sort of work ethic on the court. You never got phased by anything, even at such a young age. For a junior, it's sort of rare. He just looked like he was a senior player already as a junior. Borg plays like a grown man, but at times, he still acts like a child. Borg himself says that he was a real nutcase and even admits to cheating as a young player leading the Swedish tennis authorities to ban him from the sport for six months. He's not even allowed to practice at his own tennis club. He was a bit of a, he was a hothead when he was a kid. He was throwing the racket and very emotional. 
Mark Scoop Malinowski is the author of a number of tennis books, including Facing Bjorn Borg. He obviously totally changed that and got total control of his emotions. He was known as Ice Borg. A big reason why? Leonard Bergelin, a former Swedish tennis pro, takes on the young Borg as his star pupil. I think he saw something in Bjorn right from the word go that this guy was going to be a champion and he wanted to be involved with him. Bergelin quickly becomes more than just a coach. Leonard would stretch him, he would massage him, he would get his racket strung for him. He would uh, make sure he got the, the right practice court. And, and I mean, he, he, he was also sort of half bodyguard as well. Under Bergelin's mentorship, Borg becomes one of the youngest players in history to represent his country at the Davis Cup. Just 15 years old, Borg defeats a professional player nine years older in his debut. At 16, Borg wins the most prestigious junior tournament in the world. And at 17, Borg has his official coming out party on the biggest stage possible, Wimbledon. It just so happens that in 1973, dozens of the world's top players refused to play at Wimbledon, boycotting on behalf of Nikola Pilic, a Yugoslavian player who they felt was unfairly suspended for not participating in a Davis Cup match. That means the 17-year-old Borg becomes the main attraction. It was almost like he was like the tennis version of the Beatles in some ways, where he had this screaming people at their concerts and you couldn't even hardly hear the, hear the music. He's young, he's talented, and he's easy on the eyes too. He had the long hair and he always had those beautiful Italian clothing that he wore with the headband round. And all of a sudden, all these girls started screaming for him. And you've got to remember that in those days, no cell phones, no internet. And I still to this day don't quite know how it, how it happened, but all of a sudden, word spread about this Swedish sort of young god, you know, this Viking kind of look with the long hair. And then it just grew like a magnet. Saw board at Wimbledon Village get mobbed by a gang of, I think, teenage girls. He attacked him and they had him on, pinned on the ground and they had to call police. And it took, it took the police 15 minutes to save board from the girls. On the court, Borg proves that he belongs with the best in the world. Here's Steve Flink, a tennis journalist for the past 50 years and author of The Greatest Tennis Matches of All Time. As a 17-year-old, he beats Arthur Ashe at the U.S. Open and breaks into the top 20 in the world. And that was a remarkable win. That was a big shocker on the grass because Ashe was clearly one of the three or four best grass court players in the world. And he was rather stunned himself. So Bjorn, it happened quickly. Within a year, Borg becomes the youngest champion at the French Open since 1894. He develops a strong serve and a very effective forehand. But what really sets him apart? His speed and conditioning. The guy was lightning. Speed was a joke. He had a resting pulse rate of somewhere in the 30s and you could not tire him out. I asked him one time, I said, do you ever get tired in a match? Because I never saw you get tired. And he looked at me and he said, I, I got tired once, but then that lasted about two seconds and then I got on with it. He just seems so much larger than life, you know, sort of like a mythical figure. 
Are there any anecdotes that you can share about, you know, your time spent with him? He told me a story. He had had a few drinks, but I believe him. He said that he was on the senior tour maybe 20 years ago, and the Swedish Institute of Health asked him if he would do uh, some experiments with them because they'd heard, obviously, that this guy was, you know, this superhuman athlete. So they brought him in and he fitted him up on the treadmill and they put all the electrodes and the mask on because uh, they wanted to check him running under stress. So they said, OK, Bjorn, can you start running? And he said, sure. And they came back two and a half hours later and said, do you want to stop? And he said, it's up to you. So he basically ran a marathon on the treadmill when he didn't even go running. And this is when he was in his 40s. That's the sort of superhuman athlete that was staring across the net when you played against him. But it's not fair to make it seem like he's just some handsome kid with God-given talent. Borg takes his craft as seriously as anyone in the game. Bjorn was one of those people that when he came on court in practice, um, I mean, you'd have a laugh with him, but, you know, a change out, you know, when you were sitting down, but, but he was all business. He would just start practicing four or five hours a day on the grass. Guillermo Vilas, his coach, told me one time they were training somewhere in the Caribbean and they played 19 practice sets in one day. Some players would kind of cruise sometimes and just go through the motions in practice. And then there's other players who don't want to lose a point, even in a practice tiebreaker or set. I think Borg was more like that. Borg has also completely transformed by this point, from the short-fused, immature player he was as a junior to a stoic, poker-faced assassin on the court. The cool demeanor. He was so plastic. He was so taciturn. He was imperturbable. He could just stare into the face of pressure and never blink. You couldn't see anything from his eyes. He could have been up 6-love-2-love or down 6-love-2-love. He wouldn't have told the difference, which is very unnerving. You know, when you're playing against an opponent, you kind of look for weaknesses. Well, you looked at him and there was no weakness in his eyes and certainly not his body, that's for sure. He's got the speed, the stamina, and the ability to play under pressure. It basically means that the longer a match goes, the more unbeatable he becomes. The players across the net from him, they knew that if they lost the first set, and they then had to win another three against him, there was just no way. He could stay out there all day, and you couldn't get the damn ball past him. This combination makes him particularly devastating at the French Open, which is played on clay courts. The slower surface leads the longer rallies and longer matches. He was the equivalent of Nadal in, in the day, where the French Open, it was almost like a donation to him, that you're going to put his name on the... You know, the guy that engraves the cups, you could almost let him start engraving the cups on the first Monday. Borg goes through a stretch where he wins six out of eight French Opens, including four straight starting in 1978. Even Guillermo Vilas, the great Argentine player, the rival of Borg, just he just find himself demoralized. And he was known for his consistency. Bjorn was too much for him on the clay. And some players might be content to dominate on just one surface, not Borg. I remember talking to another player, we were talking about Bjorn, and I said, yeah, obviously he's going to be a great clay court player. But I said, uh, he's never going to win on grass. So, of course, I got that totally wrong. He only won it, uh, what, six times or five or six times, whatever it was. To Borg's everlasting credit, he changed his game for Wimbledon. On the clay, he was known for being a 
just a masterfully consistent player. He wouldn't miss a ball. He'd go 38 minutes and not miss one shot. And then miss one and go another 37 minutes. He beefed up his serve a lot. It got much bigger and much better as the years passed. And the other thing he started to do was chip his back in down the middle, come in down the middle and attack the net, something he would not have thought of doing at Roland Garros. So he definitely made some serious modifications in his game to suit the surface, his flexibility as a player and how he, he altered his game. It was really a remarkable accomplishment what he did. At this time, there's only a two-week gap between the French Open and Wimbledon, meaning Borg must reinvent his playing style in a ridiculously short amount of time. I practiced with him a few times on the grass after he had come off winning the French Open. Even though Wimbledon was the best grass out there, you've got a lot of low bounces. And so to make that transition from clay where the ball's bouncing sort of over your head to then two weeks later where the ball is bouncing faster, way faster, and bouncing down by your ankles was amazing. But I have to be honest, he really struggled to make the, the, the transition from the clay to the grass. And I kept thinking to myself when I was practicing against him, why can't I play him right this minute? Because I, I, now I would have beaten him. And I was like, please, where are the cameras? Let me play him. And then, of course, he gradually, in his methodical way, he just hit so many thousands of balls that he started getting the rhythm. Once he got his groove, uh, as, as you could see by his record, he was almost impossible to beat. It's a phenomenally difficult feat to win the French and Wimbledon back-to-back. He did it three straight years. Nobody's ever done that. 78, 9, and 80, he won the French and Wimbledon back-to-back, which I think was his greatest feat. By the end of this three-peat, Borg has developed an intense on-court rivalry with a young American player, John McEnroe. McEnroe burst onto the scene as a brilliant tennis player, but also as someone who routinely erupts in front of opponents, umpires, and even media members. Are you worried at all about the reputation you've gained over here? People are writing more about your behavior than your tennis, perhaps, sometimes. Well, you're certainly asking me more about my behavior than my tennis. <laughs> but, Don't you think uh, this is justified over this weekend? Do I think it's justified? The criticism. No, I don't. Their rivalry crests in 1980, when they meet in the Wimbledon finals. It's right up there among the top three or four matches of all time. It has to be. And that's coming from a man who literally wrote the book on the greatest tennis matches of all time. It was Muhammad Ali, Joe Frazier. When those two titans came up against each other, when you see greatness like that, they just know what to do on big points. And to have both of them and McEnroe was, you know, one of the greats of all time, without question. And to get them both to peak at the same time in the finals, that's what you want. McEnroe cruises through the first set 6-1, but Borg comes back to take the next two sets. The fourth set features an epic tiebreaker, with McEnroe winning 18-16. But in classic Borg fashion, he outlasts the younger McEnroe to win in five sets. Another example of Borg's resilience and, and mental fortitude because somehow he regrouped in and, and won the fifth set 8-6. I think he lost three points on his serve in the entire set after being down. One, only one after he was down love 30 in his first service games. He was implacable. 
he was absolutely implacable. Despite the on-court battles, Borg and McEnroe become very close friends. Borg's even-keeled demeanor even rubs off on the fiery McEnroe. John would explode. He was such a, a volatile personality and so demonstrative and emotive and often in a negative way. And he would take it out on the officials and have his tirades. That was who he was. But when he played Bjorn, Bjorn was so impeccably behaved that John was going to harm himself if he acted out the way he might against others. So he made a special effort to keep his emotions under control and he felt he would make such a fool of himself against a guy like Bjorn, who was a model of decor. Yeah, playing in Madison Square Garden, McEnroe was getting very agitated and upset. Typical McEnroe arguing with the umpire and it was the stress of the match was getting the better of him. And he said Borg called him to the net, said something like, it's okay, it's okay. McEnroe said at first he thought Borg was trying to like in front of him or show him up. But then he realized, no, he really wasn't. He was really uh, impressed by that gesture by Borg. You could see how much they respected each other and what a challenge it was to go through each other. On the strength of the Borg-McEnroe rivalry, tennis becomes more popular than ever. I think it elevated the sport immensely. It was a good contrast. That I think that, that also sold a lot of tickets. Tennis became the sport sort of that everybody wanted to play. Uh, up and down in parts, and also the Hollywood elite got into it, and it really took off big time. TV audiences jumped to see Borg, McEnroe, Connors. I would have backed those guys against any of today's in terms of their charismatic appeal. It took hold of the TV, took a hold of tennis big time in those days. To be a professional tennis player, it got you a lot of dates. <laughs> oh, yeah, I can imagine. Yes. Yeah. Borg goes on to make over $3.5 million on the court and millions more each year in endorsements. Everything from tennis rackets to cars to clothing lines to shoes. He's officially gone from star athlete to global celebrity. Bjorn became a, what they call a crossover star, where he wasn't just famous for tennis, but people weren't even tennis fans, knew who Bjorn Borg was. You were just drawn to him, you know? And when he came into a room, he had that kind of, without even saying anything. He's one of those guys that they just got it. That thing, that, that star thing, that, that uh, you just go, geez, well, why can't I have some of that? In 1981, McEnroe and Borg meet in the finals of both Wimbledon and the U.S. Open. McEnroe wins both times. And in both cases, he wins by coming from behind. Something that almost never happened to Borg. John's beaten him for the third time that year, third in a row, including the Wimbledon finals, where his streak of five straight Wimbledons had come to an end. So it was a difficult year. Bjorn was thinking, John's better than I am. I don't know if I can beat him. I mean, he didn't come out and say it word for word, but that was his actions implied it. Borg losing the McEnroe at the U.S. Open isn't seen as a major upset by any stretch. They played 14 career matches against each other, and they both won seven times. But what is truly surprising is Borg's reaction afterward. Bjorn uncharacteristically just fled the premises. He, he didn't stay for the presentation, he didn't stay for the interview, he just got out of there, which was, he, he, that wasn't how he conducted himself normally. 
He's a good sportsman and a good loser. And that was, we knew something was off. Something within Borg has changed and no one besides Borg knows what he'll do next. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. After losing the McEnroe in the finals of the U.S. Open, Borg just leaves. Not a word, not a press conference, nothing. Here's tennis journalist and author Steve Flink. The ceremony went on. McEnroe got his trophy. You didn't think too much of it. But then, as we reflected later, when we saw he wasn't coming to the press conference, then it was like, okay, wow, he actually left Flushing Meadows. He's gone. It's basically the exact opposite of what the tennis world had come to expect from a man with the nickname Iceboard. Nothing would phase him. And if something was going on inside him, he wouldn't show it. You wouldn't see it. You wouldn't feel it. He might admit it later, but he would hide it from the world. Years later, Borg says, quote, When I lost, what shocked me was I wasn't even upset. I was relieved the match was over. Winning is something special for a tennis player. That's, you know, that's probably the most happiest moment for a tennis player when you, when you win a major championship or other big tournaments. But now I don't have that eager anymore. Uh, I feel that I don't really care if I win or lose. And when it comes to that kind of point, then it's getting very, very dangerous. The Alpha Wolf identifies who his successor is in that pack. He doesn't fight it, doesn't try to prevent it, the change. He realizes it, and he just leaves the pack by himself. Maybe that's what happened to Borg. You know, maybe it dawned on him that was this guy is going to get better and better, and I can't handle him, and that's it. My time is done. The fire in Borg's belly, whatever it was that drove him to such incredible heights, has disappeared. And to make matters worse, tennis's governing body suddenly demands that, starting in 1982, the top players on the tour must compete in at least 10 tournaments in addition to the majors in order to drum up more excitement for the smaller tournaments. Understandable request, and frankly not an unreasonable one. But Borg tells the Washington Post, 
If I could be the number one player and just play the French, the US Open, and Wimbledon, it would be fine. But it doesn't exist that way. Younger Bjorn would probably have just said, oh, 10 tournaments, okay. Tell me where to show up. Now he was being a bit quietly defiant. And so that was another bad sign that he didn't want to do that. Borg plays a slate of mostly exhibition matches the following year. That way, he makes some money, and the fans still get to see him play. Borg plays in just two tournaments, and even he admits he can't maintain his top form. After losing to American Jimmy Connors at the Michelob Light Cup in July of 1982, Borg, the fastest, best-conditioned athlete on the tour, who is still just 25, says, I have to get in better shape and I will in the next couple of months. I think when he got away from the regiment and the training and the routine, I think then it unraveled. Even a short layoff, let alone an entire year, can be enough to knock an elite athlete off their game. Matt Vlander once said, tennis is life and death. You have to treat every match like life and death. Whose top player stops Treating every match like life and death goes down the rankings. With Borg missing all the major tournaments in 82, many begin to speculate. Is he injured? Is he burnt out? Is his marriage to Mariana Simeonescu, a Romanian tennis pro, falling apart? Rather than let the rumors spin out of control, he decides to address the media from his vacation in Nepal in January of 1983. Borg tells the world he has had enough. It was a shock, I think, to, to everybody, the players, that such a competitor was leaving the sport so young. Uh, it was difficult for any of us to quite believe it. Borg's agent, Bob Kane, is quick to hold the door open for a comeback, saying, I think the word retirement is too final. However, the New York Times believes that this is just a clever financial maneuver. By keeping his playing status open-ended, Borg can still collect some money from his ongoing endorsement contracts. Borg himself, meanwhile, is more definitive. He says that he will continue to play exhibition matches and perhaps a few small tournaments occasionally, but that, quote, I'll never try to be number one again. Here's John Lloyd, BBC broadcaster and former tennis pro. You've got to think that in those 26 years, he had played way, way more tennis than someone like me. And I retired when I was 31. But he would have played way more because he was more dedicated to me. So, you know, and 99.9 of the, of the players out there, he put way more work into his game than anybody else. I don't think you can comprehend it if you haven't put in the hours that he put in. Borg says, I cannot give 100%. And if I cannot do that, it would not be fair to myself to go on. But as to why he can no longer give 100%, fans and journalists alike still speculate as to the real reason. Borg is the only one who really knows. I honestly believe he's the only one that can say what it was within him. Why was he so empty? Why was it gone? Why couldn't he have, have rekindled it? I, I don't have the answer. I think everybody kept thinking that he'd come back after a few months, but he never looked back. He never looked back. In the bigger picture of tennis history, 
Warwick's departure doesn't just affect his legacy, it affects that of his peers as well. The most dismayed member of the tennis community and the most disappointed by Warwick's departure was McEnroe, because he would say many times later that he, he wanted him around. McEnroe did have a sense of the larger picture of the game, and he didn't look at it selfishly. And his attitude was, no, I listen, Bjorn may beat me some of the time, but I want him there. I want him to challenge me. I want him to bring out the best of me. And this is what the game needs. Something sort of almost fell out of John McEnroe's game in certain ways, because he was like, this is the challenge. This is what I get up in the morning to train. And once when he lost Bjorn, I think Mac in some ways lost a little part of himself, that, that hunger, because his main guy was gone. Borg actually does attempt a short-lived comeback in 1991 at a tournament in Monte Carlo. Fans wear long blonde wigs with headbands to look just like Borg, but Borg looks like anything but his old self. The rain, which has fallen unexpectedly at the start of the European outdoor season, has frustrated both spectators and players alike. It's already disrupted the championships, but for Bjorn Borg, it only delays the inevitable. He hadn't hit a ball, he hadn't played in years. He showed up there, um, and the game was changing. The players were using the graphite rackets, and he showed up with his, still with his pro wood rackets. Still strong. He never had the strings changed seven, eight years earlier. And he was out of shape. Physically, he looked in shape, but his timing was all off. We're kind of cautiously optimistic that Borg being Borg, he could somehow make it happen, and that it was too late. And too many years had elapsed, and he just wasn't the same guy. So he's got to be one of the biggest, like, what-ifs in sports, right? Do you think if he played in this era today, he would have retired that young? If he'd have been born in this era, he'd be probably out there playing till he's 35. He could have won another three or four French Opens, playing left-handed almost. He was that much better than everybody in those days. We should have seen five more big years out of him. He might well have won another seven, eight majors. And I've got to believe that deep down within his soul that he's somewhat remorseful about that. If he could have just cleared his head and had the same discipline that he always exhibited in the past, he would have still been winning some of these majors and it would have been great for tennis. Regardless, Vort's peers still talk about him with nothing but love and admiration. Even the players who would get destroyed and dominated by him, they spoke with the utmost respect. Honestly, don't think there's anybody that I've ever spoken to that ever says a bad word about Bjorn. And, you know, when someone has been around like he has and has beaten a lot of people up, you'd think someone would say, oh, yeah, he was yeah, he was cocky. Oh, yeah, he did this or he did that. Or he... No, no, you just don't. Bjorn was loved by everybody that played. So is there anything that we, like, as sports fans, should really take away from Borg's career? You know, like this whole story. The public, I wish they understood more fully. I mean, they'd be more sympathetic to players going into slumps or they, they'd be more empathetic, period, toward the leading players if they understood what it took. I mean, the hidden pressures that you can never really quite put your finger on, you can never measure those precisely, but it's always there. Months after making the retirement announcement, Borg says his life is so much more relaxed. Years after making the announcement, he says, I don't regret anything. I don't miss anything because I know I did what I had to do.
Thanks for listening to Sports History This Week. For moments throughout history that are also worth watching, check your local TV listings to find out what's on the History Channel today. Other notable sports stories that happened this week? 1924. The world celebrates the opening ceremonies of the first ever Winter Olympics held in Chamonix, France. And 1996. American tennis player Monica Seles wins her first Grand Slam title since being stabbed in the back during a tournament three years earlier. If you'd like to get in touch, please shoot us an email at sportspod at history.com or leave us a voicemail at 212-351-0410. We'd love to hear from you. Special thanks to our guests, Steve Flink, author of The Greatest Tennis Matches of the 20th Century and The Greatest Tennis Matches of All Time. Mark Scoop Malinowski, author of Facing Bjorn Borg. And John Lloyd, former professional tennis player and BBC tennis broadcaster. This episode was produced by David Ingbert. It was story edited by me, Kalen Jones, and sound designed by the Podglomerate. Sports History This Week is also produced by Cooper McKim. Our senior producer is Ben Dickstein. Our associate producers are Emma Fredericks and Hazel May. Our supervising producer is McKamey Lynn, and our executive producer is Jesse Katz. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review Sports History This Week wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll see you next week. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.